prosperity in the years ahead. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year from all of us at Central Farm Service. National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns, is brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check out their website at cybersecuritysummit.org for a list of their upcoming webinar series. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, and you've joined us for this edition of National Security This Week. We get together every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security, and we're fortunate enough to be joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us learn more about national security challenges and opportunities. Listeners may recall we've been doing a series of shows on the importance of space to American national security interests. We've had guests on the show who are experts in space policy, and we've had guests from the new U.S. Space Force to include Space Systems Command and Space Operations Command. <clears throat> Excuse me. Today we'll dive into a different area of study as we continue our exploration of space-related topics. The topic for today is space warfare, but we'll also cover a little more on space policy, on space treaties, space operations, and even how to avoid space warfare, if at all possible. Our guest is Mr. Paul Zemanski. Paul Zemanski has almost 50 years of experience in all fields related to space, including policy, strategy, simulations, surveillance, survivability, threat assessment, long-range strategic planning, and command and control. He's worked directly with multiple U.S. military services, the Air Force, Army, Navy, and the Marines. He's worked with civilian agencies to include NASA, DARPA, and FEMA, and also with the White House National Security Council and Congress. He's worked a wide variety of policymakers and program leaders across the Department of Defense over the course of many decades. Paul Zemanski has been widely published, and he's lectured over 100 times in the past three years alone in the United States, England, Scotland, Netherlands, France, Germany, Italy, Greece, Estonia, and you name it, <laughs> all over the world. Uh, Paul Zemanski earned an undergraduate degree in mathematics and logic and a master's degree in experimental physics, both from Carnegie Mellon University. Paul Zemanski, welcome to National Security This Week. Good morning. How's everything? Uh, we're having a great day up here in uh, downtown Northfield, Minnesota. Uh, you are in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Is that right? That's right. Uh, the land of uh, Billy the Kid and Breaking Bad. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and it's amazing. You go around the world and people say, oh, Albuquerque, Breaking Bad. We know that. <laughs> So, Paul, let's get started. There's a lot I want to ask you today. I want to make sure that we have plenty of time to cover it all. Uh, what, what was it that drew you to study the space? You've clearly been working in this field you know, for half a century now. Based on all I've studied preparing for this show, my guess is that you were a man well ahead of your time in considering the highly controversial topic of space warfare, which we'll get into shortly. But for now, what was it that drew you to spend your professional life studying all aspects of the control of space? Well, I always had an interest in uh, analysis, the bigger picture, policy, doctrine, and strategies. And um, so I've worked with think tanks uh, all my career. And at the very early beginning in, um, well, it's actually it was Bailey's Crossroads in uh, Virginia, Washington, D.C. Uh, I had a choice going uh, nuclear analyses or space. And space just sounded, you know, futuristic. <laughs> Uh, kind of things. I figure, well, I guess I'll try space. And I'm kind of glad because the nuclear thing kind of went downhill. And, uh, uh, you know, space is, well, let's say, uh, you know, spacey. It's the it's the future, uh, you know, Star Wars, that kind of thing. So it certainly excited somebody in my youth. And, uh, you know, I just continued on since then. And so I have to preface the remainder of our discussions today by stating that we're going to talk about, you know, quote unquote, rocket science. Uh, and that not everybody who's going to be listening today has an advanced degree in aerospace or orbital sciences or other space-related topics. Uh, so, Paul, we're going to ask you to, to make sure you explain all these concepts to us in a way that we can understand. And they are going to be complex topics, uh, but I think they're going to be fascinating for everybody to, uh, to learn about. And maybe we right. should start, start. Actually, yeah, go ahead. Complexity. I'm not necessarily going to be talking technologies. Uh, the complexity, um, uh, you know, derives from the fact that I'm talking politics. Space is is a very sensitive area, and uh, you know, uh, war by other means, uh, politics by other means, war and, and things like that. And so, um, we're really going to talk about things that are 
uh, fuzzy, let's okay. say. Fair enough. Uh, and doctrine, you know. Okay. And so let's, why don't we start with the basics and we'll kind of build our way up. Uh, and maybe we can start with uh, what, what exactly is, quote unquote, space control and why does it matter for American national security interests? Well, they've used a, a lot of terms, um, space defense, space control. I forget there's a few others. And uh, essentially, they're, they're trying to borrow from, let's say, naval warfare, sea control. And I guess it's the concept that uh, you kind of deny the adversary the ability to use space to benefit his forces on the ground, and you have freedom of action to do what you want in space. Now, I think, um, like sea control, uh, you can't control the whole Earth, <laughs> right. the oceans. Uh, you know, so it, it's very localized, and it's even more of a problem when you're talking about well space is you know way out there and, and billions of uh you know square miles and and things like that so it's probably a fantasy to think that you're going to control all of that or even know what's going on with all of that i mean it's very easy to hide a satellite to hide some secret abilities weapons buried inside a harmless looking satellite or piece of space junk so it's a fantasy that, and I think there is a lot of fantasies, and unfortunately in the U.S. government and in the Space Force, uh, that they're going to want to be able to do all this controlling, you know. Uh, and there's an issue, too, of, um, well, how do you define winning a space war, or, you know, controlling it, winning, you know, is it blowing things up? Is it just jamming them? Is it taking out an adversary's eyes and ears in space or his ability to communicate? You know, you can't even really define space control, winning a war. Two sides might say, oh, we both won. I took out all your imagery satellites. No, I took out all your command and control satellites, you know, communication satellites. We, you can't communicate to your forces now. Who's more right? Because the whole issue is everything that space does is information. It's generating information, imagery, uh, signals, intelligence, navigational weather all this stuff are transmitting it so you're really talking about information war so if you deny an adversary his ability let's say to image the battlefield how effective is that and you can't mathematically prove one way or the other because you're really saying well the adversary commander he made a decision to go left instead of right and stuff like that you know how how can you figure that all out so it's a very mushy kind of uh thing um, and, and plus, I'll, I like to emphasize, too, and I think the Space Force would get mad at me for this, but <laughs> the whole point of space, military space, space control, space warfare, is to support military forces on the ground or in the air, or, you know, terrestrial forces. There's no colonies up in space that the Space Force is trying to defend uh, or anything like that. It really is about the conflict on the ground. And you have to understand that, uh, that you're taking out a satellite because the adversary is using that in some battle that's happening on the ground. Maybe you're going to do a left hook and you don't want him to see you're building up the forces and things like that. So it's all linked to the ground. And it's the doctrine, the, even the terminology has to be familiar to ground pounders or people in the Navy or whatever you want to call it. Because they're the guys you're servicing. And and just a little more clarity for our for our listeners, <clears throat> there are different regions in space that we like to think about when we when we talk about say, you know, where satellites, certain kinds of satellites are operating in. There's low Earth orbit, sort of a medium Earth orbit, uh, geostationary orbit. What what kind of satellites that are in those different orbital planes? Well, uh, the um... The imagery sats are usually with low Earth. And as a matter of fact, they're getting to, I think it's called very low Earth orbit, where the satellites are so low, they have to continuously thrust, usually electric thrusters, to keep them from falling down. Uh, they have stubby wings because there's a little bit of atmosphere. But if you're closer to the Earth, your imagery is, you know, better resolution and so forth. So that's the usual for low Earth orbit. There's a specialized orbit called sun synchronous, and that is if you've got um, 
you know, spy satellites, imagery satellites. You want to be over the same place on Earth about the same time uh, uh, every day, uh, about 1030 in the morning, because you want shadows to kind of emphasize your targets and things like that. So there's kind of a, a choke point up there where all the imagery satellites bunch up um, in sun synchronous because they're synchronizing with the, you know, the sun. Um, and then the medium Earth orbit is more navigational kinds of satellites. Geosynchronous uh, is, is that, or geostationary, that they're moving at the same speed that the Earth is rotating, so it looks like they're fixed above there. And my impression is that um, the military was most interested in the geosynchronous belt. And I, I never could understand that, but that seemed to be what they emphasized. Uh, and the latest in thing is inspector satellites, maintenance satellites, things that can come up close and do harm or just inspect. Now, you're forgetting about, though, the um, translunar orbits, which is kind of a befuddlement to me <laughs> because my entire career, nobody cared about the moon. Yeah, I remember in the 60s and 70s, NASA asking the Air Force, well, do you want a base on the moon? And, uh, you know, the Air Force would kind of scratch his head and says, well, it's awfully far away. I don't think we really need it. <laughs> but in the last maybe five years, they're really interested in the moon. And they're putting up all kinds of satellite surveillance. And even commercial people are putting up uh, communication satellites for the moon. Like, you know, for the five astronauts are going to have cell phones. What are you going to charge them, $10,000 a second or something? You know, none of this makes sense. But it seems to be the new battleground. Yeah, and and, and we'll get into that in, in in just so, a minute. I, have, I do have some questions about the about the moon. We can talk about that in a second. Uh, for our audience, uh, you're listening to National Security this week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Mr. Paul Zamansky, and we're discussing space, space operations, and and what space warfare might look like today and in the future. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. You can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, so, Paul, I want to get into some other questions here. Paul, there have been a there have been a number of treaties in place to prevent the weaponization of space. Uh, Sixty seven Outer Space Treaty, for instance, are, are those treaties essentially defunct at this point? And I ask this because we're, we've seen multiple countries test anti satellite weapons to the detriment of, frankly, safe space travel, uh, satellite operations, even research facilities like the International Space Station. Uh, we also know countries are working on directed energy weapons systems. Uh, the U.S. and China are even talking about establishing space bases on the moon. Uh, I actually have an article here uh, that uh, China is touting they plan to have a nuclear-powered space station on the moon in operation by 2028. And I know there have been some discussions on uh, NASA's part that uh, by 2030, we want to have some sort of a, a base on the moon ourselves. Uh, maybe if, I, if we could just maybe we could start us off on treaties and we can go from there on this topic. Yes, uh, people misunderstand the 1967 Outer Space Treaty. It bans weapons of mass destruction. It doesn't ban weapons in general, uh, especially if the weapons are coming from the Earth and they're temporarily up in space. I mean, the, um, the Russians... Uh, play the game. And that's the thing. You know, I've realized over the years that countries are just like children <laughs> who do anything they want if they can get away with it from their parents, the parents <laughs> being the United Nations or treaties or, or whatever. So years ago, decades ago, the Russians had FOBs, Fractional Orbital Bombardment System, which are nuclear weapons you send up uh, you come south, they're in orbit, so to speak. You come south and you uh, avoid the U.S. Uh, radar systems and things like that, you know. And so, yes, it was weapons of mass destruction, but, you know, they had lawyers on their side, I guess, some say, but it didn't really go in orbit. It was only a fractional orbit, so it didn't violate the treaty, you know. Well, guess what? Uh, China has FOB systems again. Uh, maybe they borrow the technology from the Russians. And uh, now they're, you know, hypersonics and things like that. And it doesn't seem to bother anybody. Of course, again, maybe it's like the South China Sea, you sort of push the envelope. And one of my biggest concerns about this Chinese FOBs fractional orbital bombardment system uh, is that um, 
you can bombard cities from space with this. I yeah. know. I did the studies in the 1980s. It was technologically possible 40 years ago. It went up to the National Security Council and all that. Uh, so if you've got a hypersonic weapon, if I recall, 12,000 feet per second velocity uh, is equivalent, a, a pound of lead is equivalent in energy to a pound of TNT. So if you have several tons of concrete in space and you deorbit it hypervelocity, you can do a lot of damage in the city. So anyway, getting back to treaties, um, I spent many years in space programs that routinely violated international treaties and US laws and so forth. So again, if you can get away with it, you will. Uh, so the thing about space and there's kind of a problem and a beauty at the same time, is it's awfully far away. You know, tens of thousands of kilometers away, it's very difficult to directly image uh, a satellite. Uh, satellites, uh, anti-satellite systems can, you know, fake like they're dead or be hidden inside of things, other satellites. There's no way to really prove whether you've got a weapon or not. Um, and you know, it's like, um, what do you do about it, too? I don't know. And, uh, the treaties are great. Go ahead and, and do that and see what you can do. Uh, but I don't really know how that's going to stop anyone from doing these secretive things. Now, the good thing about it being secretive is that um, countries can show resolve, intent, will, and so forth on each other and do it secretly because countries prefer this. They don't want their uh, populace getting all upset and forcing them to go to general war. My estimation is there's been about 10 space wars since the 1970s. And there was a space war in 2014 over the Ukrainian thing that by the way, the US lost. Um, but it's uh, space is so obscure uh, that you can, you know, use it as a safety valve, I guess, between countries that they can send messages to stop this or else uh, kind of thing. And uh, I'm sure that's probably happening as we speak over this Ukrainian thing, because they're getting very serious. And I saw something where uh, supposedly the British detected Putin giving the authorization to attack satellites now. So we'll see in the next few weeks, next month, when the Russian counteroffensive happens, but uh, and and that could all happen in space, and us not knowing about it unless Elon Musk gets upset that some of his <laughs> satellites stop working. Uh, could you comment a little bit more on uh, on on China uh, working to create a a moon base, a nuclear powered moon base by twenty twenty eight? I mean, do you think that's uh, is that purely economic? Is that military? Is it is it both? Uh, what do you think they're going to try and accomplish with that? My theory is is that. 10 minutes before China lands Taikonauts, their astronauts on the moon, they're going to abrogate the 1967 Outer Space Treaty that says uh, you can't own celestial bodies. Mm. And again, you know, that, that's sort of an attitude you've seen elsewhere uh, on that. And, and anyone can abrogate that treaty, uh, I would think. I'm not a lawyer, uh, but there's actually 86 different countries around the world who never ratified that treaty. And it just seems to me, uh, Elon Musk can, you know, uh, use one of his uh, platforms, C platforms, and go into their economic zone, launch from there, and that country can declare ownership of the moon and lease it back for 99 years to Elon <laughs> or something, you know. Uh, I think you can do that. Now, to my mind, it's like Spain claiming ownership for the entire Western hemisphere, even the Pope said that was cool you know well good luck defending that ultimately but uh you know and people say oh you're crazy the chinese are never do that but a few months ago a former nasa administrator said essentially the same thing so i i don't know but i can say there's something really funny going on about the moon uh lately and so maybe there there's that uh that fear though it's like what are you going to have five or ten astronauts on the moon is there any real reason to be fighting? You know, you're fighting over resources or, or what? I don't know. Uh, you know, it seems to me it'd be a while before you should really care about the military and the moon. But, uh, you know, the Air Force Research Lab has several uh, 
moon patrol or i forget what they call it uh projects and satellites are going up and commercial people too i don't even know what the the commercial benefit is and it's it's kind of suspicious to me there's one company i forget the name that um is putting up some sort of space surveillance assets around the moon and even on the far side of the moon so it's not like it's surveilling any other satellites i know of and they had a, a funny thing they were discussing it on uh, spacey news and they said oh well we got a little extra room if anyone wants to come along with us we'll give them a, <laughs> a you know a, a cheap cost to be able to do that but the ceo of the company says oh i don't really care if we have extra passengers and we have paying passengers and it's like what company on earth doesn't care about making more money a company that's a secret cutout <laughs> of the government doing something secretive or whatever and is fully being paid by the government and really doesn't care commercially. It's my interpretation. So, Paul, what is it that most concerns you about threats, current threats to space operations, maybe even future threats to space operations, and the safety of our space systems that are, that currently support American national security? I had representatives, like I mentioned in my opening, from U.S. Space Force on the show earlier this year. And, and both of them, both Space Systems Command and Space Operations Command, mentioned that their their number one concern uh, is China. Uh, but other nations as well, but but China is really the primary uh, concern. Uh, maybe you could highlight some of the serious challenges that America faces with regard to direct threats to our space systems and capabilities. My uh, personal assessment, um, technological assessment, uh, who are the top countries when it comes to space warfare? U.S. number one. It used to be Russia number two. It's probably more uh, China number two now. Russia number three. Uh, I was in France for a week at the invitation of the French Air and Space Force uh, a year ago, and they probably told me about their mobile laser blinder system <laughs> that can, you know, blind imagery satellites and they can turn up the power and uh, damage them. So, you know, France certainly is in the game. I don't think Germany is or Italy or I wouldn't put it past uh, Britain, you know, to have anyone could have a jammer or a cyber weapon and all that. I bet you Israel does, except I have no knowledge of that whatsoever. But it sounds like it would make sense uh, on that. Certainly, there's been thoughts of, oh, North Korea, if they got a nuclear weapon, they can blow it up in space and ruin it for everybody, uh, you know, kind of thing. So those are the main things. Now, what is the threat to us? And I will emphasize, too, that there's many uh, instances throughout thousands of years of military history where a supposedly weaker force beat a, on paper, superior force. And this certainly can happen again, especially since we're you're not too familiar with space warfare and how it's really going to play out. And so it might be luck, or maybe they're lucky to have a better uh, space commander who understands these things, or maybe has better uh, space surveillance assets. Because my um, simulations have shown that most space wars are over with in 24 to 48 hours. Right. <laughs> if you sit there, scratch your head, and I've heard this, you know, uh, from NCA, uh, National Command Authorities, that, oh, we're not going to counterattack until we know who attacked us. Well, that makes sense. But it takes weeks and months to make a probabilistic assessment what happened to my satellite when it breaks. I mean, if you think about, let's say we're at war in the Western Pacific, Taiwan. And, um, you know, what would the U.S. need? Well, they certainly need, they're thousands of miles away, they certainly need communication satellites. I don't know if the Navy's big on troposcatter communications anymore, <laughs> or the data rates and all that. The submarine cables uh, in the Pacific, there's two places where you can use 19th century technology, a, a cutting, dragging anchor, to cut those cables. And it takes weeks and months to you know, fix some of those and oh by the way half of them were uh laid by chinese ships in the western pacific you know you don't know if there's some big red button in beijing to blow up those cables but at any rate so how would the u.s navy prosecute a war on the western pacific without communication 
how would they uh, send their aircraft uh, and avoid uh, anti-aircraft batteries if they didn't have signals intelligence uh, to be able to you know, go around, if they didn't have GPS to go from waypoint to waypoint, if they didn't have uh, imagery satellites to figure out what targets we want to go against and then maybe service them again if you didn't do a good enough job first time around. So that would be critical. You know, especially the U.S. does far-flung wars. They don't do it on their border. Um, China is right there, so maybe they don't need it as much. So if you're sitting there in some command center, space command center, and suddenly a satellite blinks out, you have a problem. Well, you have a problem if it's not working, but if it blinks out, uh, it's like, well, um, was a solar flare, you know, increased radiation? Uh, did a micrometeorite hit it? Um, was it an unintentional attack? Somebody accidentally got too close or something like that? Or was it an intentional attack? And the trouble is, what is the intent? Is it uh, take out, uh, you know, a decapitation of command and control? Is it taking out imagery? And then it's like, who did it? Now, there's anti-satellite systems coming at your satellite don't have red, big red stars painted on the side of them. Right. <laughs> saying, yep, I'm a bad guy, you know. And so you're going to sit there and you're not going to know, are you going to start a space war if you don't even know if it was intentional? And then you might say, oh, well, we're at war with China or whatever in the Western Pacific. Of course it's them. Well, maybe it's the Russians or the North Koreans trying to stir the pot. You know, how do you really know? Are you going to go to war over that without really knowing? Are you going to sit there? And let it happen to you, and oop, a day later, most of your satellites are gone. You lose. <laughs> so it's it's almost like the nuclear hair trigger. Whoever attacks first probably wins. Yeah, sort of a, <clears throat> sort of a mutual assured destruction, but not necessarily using nukes. It's really more taking out uh, your opponent's uh, capabilities in space. Like you said, it's all about the information capability of what space gives us. Right, and you can almost be Machiavellian about it. It's like. Um, you know, people say, you know, again, getting back to the treaties, oh, we shouldn't have weapons in Antarctica. And then you could be, you know, very practical and say, well, you know, that's a perfect place to have a war. There's no cities there that you're bombing like in Ukraine and all that. And it's the same with space. Um, we're getting to the point, maybe we're at that point, that if you lose the space war, maybe you don't even fight the ground war. And getting to a little bit of the orbital dynamics is a little bit different. Uh, there's certain key choke points in space that if you wanted to do an attack on, let's say, the U.S.'s satellites, um, you'd have to concentrate in those choke points. And, there, and there's two ways of doing it, too. You can't start maneuvering to attack at any time in a satellite's orbit. There's only specific times. And the two ways are you can maneuver all your space weapons at once, but they'll hit their targets at different times, or you can maneuver all your weapons at different times to simultaneously hit your targets for maximum, you know, surprise, shock and all. So it, you get to this point, well, if a country has very good space surveillance and space domain awareness, whatever you want to call it, and they can detect the buildup of these anti-satellites, uh, weapon systems, and these choke points that take days and weeks to do, they might frustrate that attack by attacking the weapons, or they might just go to the United Nations and say, hey, it looks like they're building up to attack us in space. If they got any sort of intelligence, they're going to attack us in space before the attack on the ground. So they take out our eyes and ears so we don't know which way their forces are going. And maybe we can prevent a war on the ground by having a war in space. You know, again, it's kind of Machiavellian, but... <laughs> It's practical. Yeah. Uh, Paul, we need to take just a short break uh, to identify our sponsor, our supporter of this show, Cybersecurity Summit. We'll be right back. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. The Cybersecurity Summit brings together cyber experts from industry, academia, and all levels of government to explore challenges, solutions, and opportunities in the cyber arena. The three-day summit includes speakers, workshops, discussions about advancing a cyber career, and keynote addresses by top leaders from across the cyber community. Learn more at cybersecuritysummit.org. 
And we're back. Uh, Paul Zemanski, uh, now, now that we have sort of some of the basics covered, uh, it's time to really launch into the core topic for the second half of our show, and that topic is space warfare. Uh, we've touched on it a little bit heading up to this point. You, you've studied this topic. You've lectured on it. You've written about it. You've created an entire curriculum to help policymakers, military leaders, intelligence professionals, and even uh, people in the academic world to understand this topic of space warfare. Uh, when, when people think about space warfare, I, I'm sure their minds might jump to something like Star Trek or, or Star Wars, but the laws of physics still absolutely apply, and orbital mechanics controls space operations, and you have maneuverability, but you can't really avoid orbital mechanics. Uh, can you help us to understand what space, for, space warfare is and, and, and what it is not? And maybe we should start with what it isn't before we dive deeply into an exploration of overall space warfare. Well, certainly uh, space warfare isn't necessarily what you see in the movies. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I doubt that someone's going to be in a space fighter maneuvering around because they'll never be able to take the G's. Right. <laughs> on uh, and I think it would all be computer controlled because it would be faster. And it's it's not if you're trying to take out a space battle station, things like that. I mean, you just go and take it out. I don't know, you know if there takes much human intelligence to figure out this and that maybe so you know maybe i'm just an old fogey uh, <laughs> on that uh so i think it'd be automated now i think it's similar to uh you know at least uh in the old days recent old days um the drones the uavs over uh iraq and afghanistan were controlled from creech air force base outside of las vegas nevada and so it's kind of a remote warfare uh, kind of thing uh, where you're, you're almost playing a computer game, you know, and you're sitting there safely in your dark command center, you know, who knows, maybe it wouldn't be safe in future war, uh, but assuming the continental United States is safe. And I think that's like a, a different psychology uh, that even though you're still killing people, and so you probably get upset with that. It's not like you're in some trench in Ukraine with rats running around and, and you're about to get blown up yourself. You know. Now, when you talk about space, it's even more a computer game because uh, you're not even killing people, really. I mean, there's no reason to attack the International Space Station and they have lifeboats they can leave and all that. There's no colonies in space you're trying to defend. I mean, maybe 50 years from now or something. So it's a different psychology, and I don't know if anyone's really uh, analyzed that. Uh, and then also, uh, you're talking tens and hundreds of thousands of kilometers distance. So it's not something that happens immediately. You know, okay, maybe have a laser, but the lasers aren't going to be that far, uh, effective that far. I mean, yeah, people talked about ground-based lasers. I've worked on several of those programs. Um, but that's usually against low Earth orbit satellites. I don't think they are effective at geosynchronous and certainly not towards the moon uh, and stuff like that. So uh, I guess it'd be different in that way. And, and, and that's an area that um, women, I guess, can get into and, and fight battles readily if you're just sitting there at a computer, you know, so for what that's worth. Um, but I, what I'd like to emphasize too is oh, look at we got this great super base weapon system. Let's go use it. But it's, oh, why are you using it? What's the effect you intend? Um, when should you use it? Is it coordinated with something's happening in the battlefield? And what are the long-term effects afterwards? And I've realized that you're not really fighting wars. What you're fighting is the peace afterwards. The whole point of the war is to reshape the geopolitical environment afterwards, you know, not to blow up and kill things. And lately, yes, you've seen uh, debris-causing anti-satellite systems. Uh, that's usually countries that are just starting to come up, try that uh, on it. But the end thing is cyber warfare uh, for space. Plausible deniability. My issue with that is, and, and let's do a thought experiment, that um, let's say you're a soldier in the trench, well, in Ukraine maybe, and the enemy tanks 
are revving up their engines and they're about to come attack you. And this egghead scientist shows up in your trench. He has this black box with a big red button. And he says, I assure you, if you push this button, there'll be a cyber attack on those tanks and they will stop. And I've tried it in the lab many times. I assure you it would work. Um, however, we spent all the budget on this silly cyber weapon. We didn't have enough money for a bazooka for you. So good luck, you know. And so the, ta the tanks are attacking and um, he pushed a button and they stop. And then 30 seconds later, they reboot and come and squish you, you know. <laughs> so I don't know about you, but at least as a guy, I think it's more emotionally satisfying to see a burning hole in the ground where the tank used to be <laughs> versus this cyber weapon that, you know, maybe it works uh, on third world countries. But when you really got some smart adversary, are you sure this really worked? Is he faking that he's dead? You know, how, how do you really understand that? And, you know, go ahead and do it, cause confusion and, and things like that. And a lot of that's been effective for taking down air defense networks. Uh, but I think ultimately you need to get up close and, and do something evil <laughs> to really be sure that you've done the job. So with regard to space warfare, we know basically what we're really focused on here, the idea behind it is uh, removing satellites, which are providers of information uh, to terrestrial decision makers or uh, warfighters, uh, military leaders. Uh, if we think about it in that term, removing one satellite, we might call that a, a tactical action. But there are serious strategic implications for even the removal of one satellite from a quote-unquote enemy capability. Is, is, that, is that a good way to sort of frame it? Okay. Um, no, it isn't. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, you're not removing satellites. You're denying a mission. Okay. Really. And so um, your commander is going to come down and say, oh, uh, 20, 48 hours from now, we're going to do this attack. Deny the adversary the ability to image the battlefield with this resolution over these lat long coordinates over the next 48 hours only. And, oh, by the way, go, go look up the rules of armed conflict and uh, rules of engagement uh, and all these things, what you're permitted to do, and go forward and do it. Now, he's saying deny the ability to image the battlefield. Well, you're going to have to deny UAVs imaging it. You have to deny the guy on a camel with binoculars imaging it. And so really, that's what you're doing. You're denying a mission. Yeah, you, you probably have to... And not just like take out the satellite, you know, there's um, temporary means to make the satellite ineffective. There's a lot of uh, talk about, oh, Elon Musk, you know, he got this Starlink and tens of thousands or whatever satellites. Uh, you're going to have to take out every one of those. And like, eh, you know, people are more clever than that. And it's, I think in the Starlink satellites, they, they have links between them and they know how close they're getting to each other um, and they can uh, start maneuvering away so they don't hit each other. And all. Okay, that's great. But it seems to me if you did a cyber attack, and I'm not a cyber warrior, but if you did a cyber attack and you changed uh, the plus sign to a minus sign and that algorithm of keeping you apart, the satellites would start maneuvering closer and closer to each other and kill them all. <laughs> you know, there's always a way to do it. And I've seen, like, over the last 30, 40 years, I've seen some very clever cyber techniques. Now, getting back to tactical versus strategic, this is where the Space Force is failing. Sorry, guys. Um, every single one I've talked to, you know, lieutenant level to general officer level, is only thinking tactically. Hmm. And, uh, oh, look at this. Again, you, you get overly enamored with the weapon system, but it's like, well, why are you using it is really the question you should be answering. Um, and then it's like uh, getting back to the debris thing that uh, you could win the battles and lose the war. I mean, that's sort of what's been happening in the United States for the last 50 years. Uh, you can win the battles, win the war, but lose the peace. So, oh, look, at we had this great, you know, uh, weapon system. We created all this debris and now our allies hate us after 
the war. So we kind of lost, you know. However, let's say if we lost the space war mm, against China or something like that, which is a possibility, uh, maybe our allies would say, God, I thought the United States was so strong. I guess they weren't. Maybe we should start sidling up to China more now and stuff. And so you lose that way. So again, it's that balance, but you got to think that through. The strategic app, uh, applications and by definition, everything you do in space is uh, strategic because every satellite covers the whole globe, you know. Uh, and so there's strategic implications, there's political implications, there's more subtle implications of, um, you know, like in Ukraine right now, one of the things that we're doing is training Russians to fight war better. <laughs> That <laughs> is the true. Next war round, they're going to be better at it. <laughs> the unintended so, consequences, right? Right. And so for space, maybe there's some super secret weapon you've got that maybe you better not use because the guy you're attacking is going to learn his lesson the next time around. You need something to sneak up on him and, and confuse him again. And this is particularly true in cyber. I mean, use once and throw away because the guy knows what you did. And he makes a change and things like that. So, yeah, that's what I keep emphasizing. It's all strategic and it's all political. People, I guess, unfortunately, are used to war on the ground. They're not used to war in space. So you're going to have a lot of people get upset with the war in space uh, and prevent you from doing certain things. And and I sense the space U.S. Space Force is getting people used to the concept of war in space. You can just see how they're say talking about where, you know, years ago, uh, there was a certain Congress lady in California that said if she saw in any of the um, uh, requests for funding, uh, the words uh, weapon and space in the same paragraph, she would defund the whole program, you know. And so we had to use measly words, <laughs> you know, get around it. We never used the term target. You know, it was a resident space object, RSO, you know, this sort of thing. Uh, so you can see the changing political environment. Uh, you could see because we lost the war in 2014, uh, people are getting very upset. The French told me why there's a space force, the attack that happened in 2017. I won't relay it now, but... In an unclassified environment, they told me the rest of the world knows about it. Congress knows about it. That's why we got a space force. Uh, there's things happening up there, serious things. And so we have to do something about it. And, you know, the genie's out of the bottle, guys. Um, it's been happening. It will continue to happen. I think, um, I forget, one of the 100-year-old commies had a quote, uh, that he says, you you may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. And sooner or later, it's going to bite you. And you could, you know, be the ostrich with your head in the ground, uh, but it's going to happen. And, you know, I could be a warmonger and, and say, well, maybe it's better to have a war up in space than on the ground, guys. You know, uh, let's think all this through. But think what happens after the war. I mean, I, I think yeah. most people are getting away from the space debris. The uh, Russians, you know, did that test a few months ago. That was a threat to us. Uh, they uh, went against um, sun-synchronous satellites, which is where the uh, National Reconnaissance Office imagery satellites are. Yeah. So that obviously was a threat. Uh, they threatened uh, GPS satellites uh, a week la later. And I haven't been able to detect any major space war happening so far, though I have my suspicions. And it might have been that uh, deterrence worked. I don't know. Hmm. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Mr. Paul Zemanski, and we're discussing space, space operations, and what space warfare might look like today and in the future. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. You can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, so, Paul, we have about 14 minutes left in the show. It's always amazing to me how fast this show goes by. Uh, I, I try to ask my guests to highlight potential opportunities, right? Uh, sort of the positive side. Opportunities for the United States to explore or achieve, mitigate, even reverse non-optimal solutions or outcomes. Uh, what what opportunities are for the United States with regard to this topic of space warfare? I, I mean, should we 
should we rethink this uh, treaty approach? Uh, do our best to su- to support or reduce or even eliminate the potential for space warfare, uh, or is it too late now? And our nation's best interests are to rapidly develop new capabilities to dominate in space against potential adversaries. Uh, what what do you think? Well, go ahead and try the treaties, but like I've mentioned earlier, um, they're easily violated. Mm-hmm. You can't verify if they violated them. It's easy to. Um, have anti-satellite systems hidden up there. I mean, I I have software I developed that looks at strange things happening in space. And, <laughs> you know, there's something called a, uh, uh, what a graveyard orbit from the geosynchronous, geostationary satellites where you, you move them to get them out of the way uh, so that it doesn't smash into anybody. And uh, I've detected Chinese satellites that went up there, but their orbital elements get better with time in other words it's still being controlled Mm. so something is being hidden up there uh you know there's funny things like uh a chinese badao satellite uh which is their navigational gps kind of satellite uh they took one of these maintenance satellites that they'll probably tell you about that had manipulator arms and grabbed a hold of it they claimed it was dead and moved it to graveyard orbit See, there's a lot in the the press. You can read open source. I don't have security clearances. And I look at that and I say, well, you know, uh, graveyard order was about 300 kilometers plus or minus the geosynchronous altitude. They moved it to 3,000 kilometers above. Now, (laughs) uh, fuel is everything in space. You're not going to do that unless you're trying to hide something. (laughs) And they said, oh, this poor uh Badao navigation satellite we launched it and it broke immediately and it's been drifting around the geosynchronous belt and we're just going to be good guys and pull it out of the way <laughs> well yeah i'm suspicious that they faked its death it actually was an inspection satellite maybe it had some weapons capabilities on it and it was drifting around and two days after the u.s was going to launch two more of its inspector satellites that they proudly announced they get rid of the evidence so they can't see what it really was doing. Now, that's my interpretation, you know, but uh, that's an example of how there's a lot of funny things you can do in space. So the treaties and all, you know, try hard on that. It might even be like nuclear treaties. Oh, you only can have so many nuclear weapons. Well, who knows if something's stored inside some mountain somewhere, you know, and people... You know, when you're talking about governments and, you know, you're about to be deposed or you're about to die, people do all kinds of, of bad things to preserve that. So it's like on the ground. And I heard a few months ago there was an incident between an American and a Russian submarine off the Sea of Japan. And that's all you hear. And, you know, there was no... um you know, guy with a camera uh, from the press taking pictures of it. They just mention it. And then, you, you, you know, I'm told you go to CIA headquarters, you know, in Virginia, and they, um, they have a wall of all the agents who died, you know. Well, governments love keeping that secret. They love because it's under the water, they can keep it secret. Because it's spies, they can keep it secret. Because it's space, they can keep it secret. And they really like it that way. And maybe that's good. Um, You know, it's nice for us to know, or maybe not. You know, it's like the um, Falkland Islands Mm. years ago. You know, was it Argentina or something? Yeah, yeah, 1982, uh, war between the UK and Argentina. Oh, yeah, like 40 years ago. Yeah. So, um, you know, did the Britain really care about those islands? But their populace got all upset they had to do something about it, you know. And then... I don't know, thousands of people died and, and stuff like that. So you got to watch out. There's the whole primitive part of our brains that let us make decisions that end up being bad many times. So I don't, okay, so that's a mushy issue. I already mentioned tactical versus strategic, and space is always strategic. You guys better really be start thinking about this. And before you push some button to blow up a satellite, or whatever you better really understand the implications and why are you doing it? And if you're going to have these political outfalls, was it really worth it? 
And how can you prove it was worth it if it's mostly information and you're denying information to the adversary? Uh, you know, it might even be what kind of flavor of adversary you're talking about. If it's some North Korean dictator, some 80-year-old crusty general who never believed in space and he doesn't care whether he gets imagery information or not, you know. And so maybe you don't take out his imagery satellite. You take out his command and control because his forces will freeze in the trenches if they don't have the commander telling him what to do. They don't want to be in you know, front of the firing squad. Where if you're talking about Western Europe and Americans, they don't even follow their own manuals and doctrine. They'll keep <laughs> going whatever without the command and control. So, okay, it depends who you're fighting, you know, and Russians, I don't know, you know, if they're more independent or something. It depends on the culture of the society. It depends on the timing. You know, if you do this too late, it doesn't matter. If you do it too early, they get to counter it somehow and put UAVs up or something. Um, so you got to really think of those bigger pictures, not the, what, as far as I could tell, the only thing the U.S. is thinking about is, oh, this satellite's coming up close to me and it's inspecting me and I'm going to try to get away or I'm going to shoot back. And it's just all this tactical mentality uh, that really doesn't make sense. Uh, because war is not, you know, there's um, over 2,000 years ago, there's an ancient Greek philosopher, I forget which one now, who said war is not about killing people and breaking things. It's about making the adversary change his mind. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they understood that back then. And so if you're attacking this satellite, are you changing somebody's mind <laughs> on the ground ultimately? Uh, so it's that. Uh, I guess the third major area is uh, the FOBs, Fractional Orbital Bombardment System. Are, are, they, the, are they the biggest threat that we have that's from space for for a country? Yeah, let's say for capability, near-peer, uh, as they call it, which is good enough. Again, there's so many instances where people with fewer weapons beat us, our allies. Um, but then you have to, you know, we always have this, Oh, we got an enemy. Now fund more weapons programs for us. You know, so it's if they have the capability, yes. At what points would they use it and why would they use it? Is what you should be considering. Yeah. You know, but um, okay. France has this mobile laser blinder. Are they an enemy? Well, I don't know. I hope not. Um, so it's all geopolitical ultimately, that everyone's gonna have these things. Um, you know, it doesn't take much uh to buy a, a jammer i remember years ago there was like jammers.com website that you could buy <laughs> jammers you know and uh, russians would gladly sell you its um uh jammering systems they they're you know they're announced there even the united states has their counter communication system go look it up they'll probably tell you about it they'll show you pictures of it it's down here in almogordo uh based down there i think Force Space Control Squadron or something like that. Um, and his mobile laser cyber attack weapons. Now, it seems to me, let's say you're, um, you know, like China at the moment. And you don't have to be at war with them. See, you could use these things to kind of mess with people. Matter of fact, uh, let's say they put up a new imagery satellite system or signals intelligence one. And you have some sort of cyber weapons that... Sometimes makes it work, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it gets bad information, you know, and make them lose confidence in it when they might want to use it during a, a war. But let's say you have this counter communication mobile uh, cyber weapon that the U.S. has, maybe you'd be willing to sell one of those to India because you prefer them attacking China versus us and them taking the heat. You know, these are all these like kind of bigger questions. And I'm just fantasizing here. Sure. Uh, but this is how it works, you know, in yeah. the real world. So, Paul, we only have a, a, about four minutes, four or five minutes left. Uh, we have covered a lot of ground this morning, uh, but we certainly haven't tapped into everything that we could have discussed. Uh, what, what haven't I asked you that I should have asked you? And, or maybe what other topics should we explore in the time we have remaining? Again, we only have about four minutes to go. I guess, I guess what well, I should say is the last word is yours. <laughs> what do we oh, need to take uh, away yes. from our discussion um, today? Well, I have um, uh, a space warfare discussion group on LinkedIn. If you want to uh, join that group, 
Um, and uh, you could personally ask me, uh, I have probably 30 different briefings on this subject. I can send you links uh, to those briefings. Uh, there's uh, you know, a lot of issues. Like I've proposed that we need a space warfare think tank, mm. like you know the Rand Corporation or things like that, to go through a lot of these issues. And again, they're almost political strategic issues. It's like, oh, uh, you know, what's a space escalation ladder? And how does it link to the ground? Can you have a war in space and no war in the ground or vice versa? Uh, you know, uh, is it better to have lasers versus kinetic kill? Um, you know, uh, there's issues like, oh, we've got these European allies and all the, you know, the French, oh yeah, they got this mobile laser blinder, uh, maybe other things. And they say, oh, they will help us. Well, if there's some sort of fancy uh, anti-satellite system that Europe has, and you're at war in the uh, Western Pacific, it's going to take days and weeks for them to maneuver over to you to help you. And they'll use up maybe 80, 90% of their fuel to do that. Um, so one of the things I'm getting at is you fight with what you got at hand at the moment especially if the war is over within 24 to 48 hours. And so what should you have at hand? You know, lasers, uh, jammers, cyber weapons, where should they be located? Uh, European theater, even if they're satellites, you know, kind of optimized for the European theater or Western Pacific theater, what kind of systems are best for those sort of things? So that takes a lot of long range planning. Uh, and so these are the kinds of issues I discuss. You know, I mentioned we should establish a space warfare think tank and we should invite our allies because we're really, you're not attacking a satellite, you're attacking the information. You're not necessarily attacking the information, you're attacking the adversary commander's mind when it really comes down to it. So, you know, we haven't had a really big space war yet. I got a lot of ideas how it'll come down, but who knows, you know? So we should get these people together, discuss it. We should have our allies discuss it because they'll have a different attitude, a different way of thinking. And just to be able to get ahead of the thing, you know, even have State Department people involved and stuff yeah. like that. Well, it's good to have the diplomats involved all the time, right? <laughs> that's, a, that's a better way to do business. Well, I, I have a story. Uh, <laughs> one of my people uh, is a, a former assistant secretary of the State Department. And for years, I've been telling these people, you know, they develop these space weapon systems. And I said, hey, you ought to get the State Department involved early on. They could tweak it slightly so that 10 years later, if you spend $100 million and they're going to help approve it or not, the use of it at the National Security Council, they might say it would be more acceptable to us if it's slightly different. And they speak the Air Force in the old days. Oh, we don't want the State Department people. We can't trust them. <laughs> okay, well, last year I was talking to one of the uh, a former assistant secretary of state, and he says, yep, you're right, you can't trust them. They never uh, saw a space treaty they didn't like. They just do feel-good things, and they'll uh, negotiate away all our capabilities <laughs> and stuff like that. Don't trust them. Now, of course, that's standard in the government. You know, everyone hates each other and, and doesn't trust each other, and I want to you know, keep my budget and all that. So, okay. But... I think it's a good idea to include these people, or at least in a think tank. That's not the Air Force, Space Force, or anything. It's kind of ivory tower or whatever. So unfortunately, Paul, we, we have uh, come to the end of today's edition of National Security This Week. Uh, Mr. Paul Zemanski, thank you so much for joining us today to discuss space, space operations, concepts in space warfare, and and and, and maybe how to avoid that uh, that outcome if it uh, if it were to uh, if if it were on the table. <clears throat> Paul, uh, you mentioned LinkedIn. Is there a website that you could tell our uh, listeners about that they could go to to learn more about the work that you've done? Uh, well, I have several websites, but again, uh, just uh, contact me on LinkedIn, and I can send you those. And it's Paul Zamansky, S Z Y M A N S K I, and they can find you right. on LinkedIn. Paul, thank you so much for your time this morning and for sharing your expertise with all of us. Okay, thank you for providing the time for me. And that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week. Have a great finish to your week, everybody, and have a safe 
and Happy New Year. We'll see you in 2023. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns with host John Olson. It's brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check their website, cybersecuritysummit.org, for a listing of their upcoming webinar series. Thank you.